Good morning, guys. So go ahead, please open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We'll be starting at verse 16. Uh, Paul's just arrived in the great city of Athens, and we're going to get to see him go all around the city. I'm going to read verses 16 through 21, and then we'll continue in the uh, story as we go along teaching. So, Acts chapter 17, verse 16. This is God's holy word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy, if you remember, are coming to him to meet him in Athens. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and all the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is God's word. Let's pray. God is your church. Father, is the people who have been ransomed by you have been won by the blood of Jesus, who have new life because of your resurrection, Jesus. We come now under your word. We don't stand over it to judge it, but we say that this book is God-breathed, that is profitable for teaching and correction and reproof, that you know what we need and we find what we need in Christ in this book we say that it is without error, that it is inspired by your Holy Spirit and infallible, that what, you're, what you aim to teach and do in your word, you never fail to do. And so God, we ask you for all that we need. Thank you that your understanding is beyond limits, that there is not one person in this room who you don't know what's going on in their life and you don't understand. Speak now, Lord, as we come under your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O rock, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Man, well, I've been feeling a lot of things this week, and I've been feeling them super deeply. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's uh, one of the following things or a combination of them, uh, but the news has just seemed particularly heavy this week. Um, I don't know if it's that. I don't know if it's the heartache that is baseball in October. Like, um, I don't know if it's just a lot of personal changes in my life recently or uh, the fact that I've started to watch This Is Us. Um, but I'm just feeling a lot of things and I'm feeling them deeply. And I'm not always sure what I'm feeling. Uh, but I felt acutely aware this past week of the kind of world we live in. Acutely aware of the kind of world we live in. That isn't to say that I've had, I've been understanding everything. Has anybody, did anybody, how many of you guys live in CARP itself? I'm sure it was this way up and down the coast, but the, just the sea layer a fog that was hanging around to like 10 a.m. and the sun would start to break through it, you know? I was, I was feeling so much stuff. I went on a run the other day. Like, I don't do that um, <laughs> willingly, normally. Uh, so I went on a run and I'm just going around and it's this fog is just dense around us and I couldn't even put all of the things into words, but it was like resonating with my soul where it was like, man, is this just metaphorical of everything in the entire world this week? I don't know if it's like that for you, but uh, 
I felt acutely aware that our world is what we might call God-haunted. That is to say, no matter what you ascribe to belief, there feels to be this pervading sense that it's almost hard, really hard to believe sometimes. That God was here, but he seems to be gone. That a lot of people have that sense and that feeling. It, it feels summed up, and it feels summed up in the, line, uh, the opening line of a memoir by Julian Barnes, who said this I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Man, and I, I don't ascribe to that, like, I believe in God and until sometimes I kind of miss his presence in my own life, but it feels like that, that's the ethos, that's the feeling of the culture around us. So many people, I, I don't believe in God, but man, I miss him. What we want to do today as we turn to Acts chapter 17, as Paul is in Athens among the great philosophers of his day, the great philosophers of all time who have shaped forever how all of us think about this world. What I want to do is to, uh, the purpose or the thing I want to do is twofold. And that is first to, to have something of an understanding of the world in which we find ourselves, to kind of get our bearings, to find like, to figure out what, is there a map to like the world we're living in right now? I want to understand the world around us. And secondly, I want to develop the kind of missionary heart, mind, and will that we see in Paul in Acts chapter 17. The kind of missionary heart, mind, and world that he has for the people who don't yet know God. And what might that look like in the particular world we find ourselves in today? For those people who feel like they're just groping in the dark for God. And they don't know quite what they're looking for, but they're looking for something. So we'll begin by looking at Paul's missionary heart, the missionary heart. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Whoa, we got a Amber Alert? We're good? Okay. I thought it might be everybody. No problem. We'll keep going. I'm sorry. Now, Acts chapter 17, verse 16. You with me? Cool. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul, Paul's biding his time in Athens, maybe enjoying a gyro or some souvlaki in uh, a nice beverage, which is what I did on my missionary trip to Athens. Uh, Okay, it was my honeymoon, but I'm living the missional life, you know, so we can call that a missionary trip, right? Uh, but you'd imagine Paul just living it up. Like, this is Athens. One of the great minds in the history of the world is what we have in Paul. And he's around the great philosophies. And he's around these huge structures like the Parthenon. You think he might be going around and taking in the culture and being able to understand understand what it's like to be in Athens. You would think that's what he's doing. But instead, the first thing we learn about Paul is that his spirit is provoked within him as he sees that the city is full of idols. Now, we need to understand what we're talking about when we're talking about idols in the entire in the entirety of the scope of the Bible. So if you, if you open up the dictionary, you're going to get some kind of definition. An idol is an image or a representation of a God used as an object for worship. Okay, so it's an image of a God used for, as an object of worship. That's kind of what you're going to find as a definition. But I think, I think we actually need to get deeper than that because I believe the story that the Bible tells is actually deeper than just an image, just a little statue. That I would posit that the Bible teaches an idol is actually whatever you look to to satisfy you or to fulfill you. 
An idol is whatever you say, whatever you say in your heart of hearts, as long as I have that, I feel like I'm at the center of existence. I know my purpose. It's whatever, if you lost this, if you lost this thing or this relationship or this status, you wouldn't know who you are. You are nothing. When it gets poked at, you kind of freak out. It's what you think about while you're daydreaming, driving to work. The last thought you have while your head is on the pillow and you're about to fall asleep. An idol is whatever we look to to satisfy us, to fulfill us. And Paul, Paul has a missionary heart. And so his spirit is provoked within him, seeing the idolatry all around him. It was actually said to get an idea of the Athens he's encountering, that it was easier to find a God in the city of Athens to find a man. It was easier to find a God than a man in the city of Athens. And so Paul, he's provoked at seeing this. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this word provoked because it's, it's an interesting word that we only see used in the New Testament one other time. We only see it used in the New Testament one other time, but it's actually used over and over again in the Septuagint. Now, you maybe have heard the Septuagint, that word, before, but let me remind you what it is. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. A Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it was translated just before uh, the time that the New Testament was written. So it's really helpful sometimes when we're like, I'm not sure what this word exactly means in the New Testament. If we can find that in the Septuagint, how they translate into Hebrew, we get a, or what Greek word they, you know what I'm saying. It's really helpful to gain lexical context. There you go, lexical context. Now I know what I'm talking about. So it's really helpful to look at the Septuagint. What, what does this word provoked mean? And the word is used over and over again to describe God's reaction to Israel's idolatry. So after God has taken his people out of the land of Egypt, rescued them from slavery and their oppressors and put them down in the wilderness and they say, hey, Moses has been gone for a little while. I know, let's make a golden calf and worship that as our God. And God sees that. It says he is provoked at the sight of their false worship. And then later on in Israel's history, when they are committing all kinds of heinous, immoral immoral acts and worshiping Baal, it says that God, the false god Baal, God is provoked at this. Another time when the Israels create a second golden calf. Did you know the Israelites created a second golden calf? Like, come on, guys, that's kind of a weird sin. And like, it really messed things up for a long time. But they make a second golden calf in the northern part of Israel. And God is provoked by that. So what's going on? What is going on here is that Paul sees people are searching and seeking after that they're longing and they're lusting for idols that will never be able to deliver on their promises. Things that say they'll give you the world and they leave you empty every time. False gods. Paul sees that and so he's provoked within himself. He's jealous like a spouse is righteously jealous when an unwanted foreign third party comes into a marriage. That's the kind of jealousy he's feeling. He's like, this will never work. This can't be. He knows the one true God, and so his spirit is provoked within him. And within Athens, there are all kinds of gods. There was the goddess of sex and gods of war and power, gods of pleasure, gods of success and prosperity. Now, I want to ask you at this point, if your spirit is provoked within you at the idolatry we find in our own city. In thinking about uh, what the idols, what the particular false gods that we are tempted to worship are, I came up personally with three of things I see 
in our culture, in the coastlands particularly. I see, I see wealth and image and community. So the false gospel of wealth. There is a false gospel of wealth that says, if I just had some more money, my life wouldn't be such a struggle. I'd, I'd be able to actually buy a house here right? I could buy a house here. And, and the stress that's on my marriage because of money, it would be gone if I just had a little bit more. I know, I know the ups and downs are still going to be there, but at least there would be some equilibrium. The false gospel of wealth. I think there's a false gospel of image. The idea that I need to be fit and on top of trends and not look like I'm trying too hard while I'm on top of trends and healthy in order to feel okay about myself and presentable to others. If I'm, if I'm not working out enough, if I'm, not, if I'm wearing clothes that are not attractive, if I don't f- feel healthy and presentable to others, I'm worthless. I don't want to go outside. I don't want to do it today. Lastly, I think there's a false gospel of community. And I think this is one that perv- can pervade our own, uh, our own church and our own, uh, our own mindsets. The false gospel community says, as long as I have people around me who care about me, as long as, long as I have something to do on my nights, as long as I can fill the weekends with somebody or someone or a group of people, then I'm going to be okay. It doesn't matter whatever life throws at me, I will be okay. As long as I have some other Christians around me who love me enough, then I will be okay. Now, in all of these things, the reason idolatry is so powerful and has such a grip over our lives is because none of these are bad things. These are good things. These are great things. Wealth is not bad. Image is Image is not bad. Fashion is not bad. Being healthy is not bad. Community is one of the greatest blessings from God. But idolatry is taking a good thing and putting it in the place of God, which is an egregious offense against him. It's to basically say, hey, God, I I want your stuff, but I don't want you. Give me your things. They're more important than what you yourself can offer me. You're only as valuable insofar as what you give to me and how satisfying I'm finding it. Is your spirit provoked within you? Do you have a missionary heart that sees in our world and even in our own lives the ways that idolatry can take root? Paul not only has this missionary heart, he doesn't just feel something and then do nothing, but his heart actually moves him to engage with his mind and his will. And so we see in Paul also that he has a missionary mind and will. Verse 17 continues, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And they're kind of like, Paul, Paul's like the old guy trying to play chess in the coffee shop and talk everyone's ear off. You know, have you ever encountered someone like that? You hang out at different coffee shops, I guess. So Paul's that, he's like babbling on and on. What's this guy doing? But he's trying to engage with people and he's actually going to be gaining an audience with some of them. And I want you to look at Paul's response. What is Paul's response to having seen the idolatry? What does he do? He goes to the marketplace and starts to have, get this, real conversations in person and get to know people. That's what he does. He's provoked. This is not right. His spirit is moved. He's jealous in a right way. And he goes and he starts talking to people and getting to know them. He doesn't just like sit behind a computer screen and just launch missiles in the comment sections and like, ah, yeah, I showed them. I showed them. I'm changing worldviews today. No, he goes and he has real conversations with people. How refreshing is that? 
How refreshing is that? In a day and age of YouTube comments, it's one of the most refreshing things I can think of. So very quickly, I want us to, it says he was discussing with Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. Those are the two uh, primary philosophies that are identified. I want us to talk about that and have like a little bit of an understanding of what those two things are. Because it's actually going to affect really how Paul preaches to these people. The kinds of things he, say, he says to them. The sources from which he draws from are because these are Stoics and Epicureans. So for, first up is Epicureanism. Can you say Epicureanism? Yeah, you already know what it means. So Epicureanism was a form of hedonism, which hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. If it makes you feel good, do it. Because that'll be, that'll be satisfying. That's how you're going to live the good life. Epicureanism was a form of hedonism that didn't say you should just do whatever you, ever, whatever you feel like at any, any given moment, but that the good life is basically live by obeying your desires. Do what you desire and you will live the good life. In this philosophy, people believe that God made this world but he basically dipped out and is like 10,000 light years away. So he's out of here. He's out of here. Therefore, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Because it's all chance. Like he spun the clock, maybe, but does it, does it beat to a regular rhythm? I don't know. Just enjoy today. Go eat at the lark and do whatever you want. Because you could die tomorrow, and don't you want to live a good life? That's basically what Epicureanism says. Stoicism, on the other hand, believed in a creator God, but he was kind of a pantheistic God, a God, an understanding of God that is in everything. God is in all. So he's not necessarily a very personal God, but he's detached from this world. He's detached from this world. He's sovereign, and this entire universe is deterministic, and it's fatalistic, meaning what will happen will happen, and there's nothing you can do about it. So Stoicism says, in light of all those things, the way to live the good life is to detach yourself from your strong emotions that end up with negative outcomes. So the problem, the problem with living, uh, the way you live a bad life is to care too much about stuff and get bummed out. So still today, we say a stoic person. What's a stoic person? Somebody who has control over their emotions, who doesn't really give in to them, right? Stoicism says God's so far, like he's determined everything. So just don't be too attached to anything. Epicureanism says God's out of the picture. So do whatever you want. What's interesting is that Paul actually is going to understand his audience really well. And he in his, to use the phrase John Stock coined, in his gossiping of the gospel in the marketplace and in his conversations with people, he will affirm, he will be able to affirm what is good in their ideologies and speak life into them. He's going to have the kind of missionary heart and mind and will that can engage with people on their own terms. Now, the salient point of all this that I want to make, though, in talking about Epicureanism and Stoicism and its relation to idolatry, what I want us to get is this, that idolatry, that is the worship of anything other than God as God, is always accompanied by philosophy. Idolatry is always accompanied by a certain philosophy. What you believe about what the good life is what God is like, and what it means to be a good person utterly affects the way that you worship and what you worship. And the dominant philosophy of a region will affect everyone living in it. Those three questions which have constituted what philosophy is. Philosophy was just a pursuit of answering, what's the good life? What is God like? And how can I be a good person? How you answer those will shape the way that you worship and what you worship. And we're all affected by the dominant philosophy of our area. So in studying and in thinking and in reading and in praying and trying to look at 
this world that we find ourselves, particularly in the coastlands, I want to give you what I think the dominant philosophy we find ourselves in today, here in Carpinteria, Santa Barbara, and Ventura. I believe the dominant philosophy is, is a pluralistic. That's to say that we can hold two things to be, two things that are contradictory to be true at the same time. It's a pluralistic melding. So you take this one thing of pantheism, that God is in everything. God is, God is in everything. He's in nature. He's in our conversation. He's in these different things and a spiritually vague secularism. That is to say, there's moments that we experience beauty. And it's almost a moment of transcendence. And we're like, wow, there really must be a God. But then so quickly, so quickly what comes to mind is, I can't believe that. I can't measure that. I can't taste, touch, see, feel hear that? So it must not have happened. That we hold together those two things, God is in everything, this vague spiritual secularism where it's hard to believe in something. So what does all that look like on the ground? Okay, if I, if I overshot, what does that look on the, like on the ground? Okay, so consider a typical Carpenterian or Santa Barbarian, okay? So they wake up, they wake up, one who doesn't, would not ascribe to the Christian faith. They wake up and they want to feel, they want to feel whole and connected and they want to know meaning. So what do they do? Perhaps in the morning they go uh, to a yoga class or a workout class. And so what do you feel? You feel centered and I feel, oh, I feel so much more in touch with myself and the universe. And we might use some words, they might use some words like, yeah, it was, this place is just has really good energy and really good vibes. And we're trying to describe this vague spiritual thing while not forcing it on anyone else because I don't know if I can really prove it. And then, uh, and then after that, you want to go and get a backyard bowl. And so you feel healthy and you feel, again, connected in the world. And they have these almost spiritual experiences where it's almost impossible to miss out on these where we live. Because you've got, you got the hills on one side, and then you've got the beautiful ocean on the other. And if you're outside for long enough, there's going to be moments of beauty that just haunt you. And you're like, is this really just chance? But then a second later, you're racked with doubt. I don't know if I can actually believe that. I think that is the world in which we find ourselves And so it affects our thinking and how we experience the faith as well. So Paul, in light of understanding his area, the Epicureans and the Stoics, uh, they invite him to actually teach some of the things that he believes. So verse 18, part B, okay? I chopped it down the middle, part B. It starts with the word others. Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. I love that language. It's kind of like fantasy novel. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So the Areopagus, you can think of kind of like a classy version, a classy version of like a Reddit forum or uh, Twitter, right? People are gathering together. Yeah, I tried that joke again and it (laughs) fell flat. Um, Okay, so it's where you come to present new ideas, where you come to present new ideas. And that's what people are just constantly doing. They bring something new uh, and that's all they do. They just tell each other, well, what do you think about this and this? So they want to hear Paul. Like, you guys are going to trip out. This guy, I don't even know what he's talking about. It has to be some foreign thing we've never heard of. So they bring in Paul and they think he's preaching about foreign divinities from, from, from some faraway land. And what I want us to see is that the gospel, when it is rightly preached, it will always, at parts, feel foreign to us. 
That is to say, if everything in the gospel feels completely at home within you, and it doesn't rub on some of your pride, it doesn't come against some of your own desires of what to do with your money or your time or your abilities, it may be that you're a few weeks away from glory and you have been living just this spirit-empowered, grace-changed, Jesus-filled life. And the gospel is taken home. It's like your second nature. You're like, yes. Or, or we may not be hearing the complete gospel. If it's not rubbing on parts of us, if it doesn't feel in some aspects foreign. And us as believers, okay? So if there's parts of the gospel that's still rubbing on us, that's good news if we submit to it, if we believe it, because it's doing a good work in us. It's making us more like Jesus. Verse uh, 22. So Paul, Paul starts his speech in the Areopagus. Standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects you worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. For in him we move, we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's moved by his missional heart to use all the faculties of his mind and will in order to contextualize the gospel for the Athenians. Now, if some of these thoughts of, oh yeah, how would you bring the gospel to someone who hasn't heard it or who has this different worldview and understanding of how life works? How, how do I communicate that to my neighbor who like didn't grow up in the church and he doesn't have these categories of sin and salvation that I have? I'd want to recommend that you actually take the perspectives class because you're going to be able to dive into a lot of these things of, okay, what is contextualization? And how, how are we missional sent people and senders? And how do we reach people where we are? Or how do we go to other nations? And what does that look like as you enter a new culture and you look for points of contact within that culture to share the gospel? I really recommend you take the perspectives class. But for us this morning, the little uh, thing I'd like to lay before you is the idea of contextualization. So Timothy Keller defines contextualization this way. It means to resonate with, yet defy the culture around you. It means to antagonize a society's idols while showing respect for its people and many of its hopes and aspirations. It means expressing the gospel in a way that is not only comprehensible, but also convincing. It's to look at the context in which you find yourself and to say, what is good that I can affirm here? And what hopes and longings does the gospel actually fulfill for these people that they don't yet see? What is there to affirm? What is there to confront? What is there to fulfill and bring hope? So I want us in Paul's missionary mind and will to first notice that Paul has a genuine goodwill towards the men of Athens. It's not a contrived thing. He says, I perceive that you are all in every way religious. He says, hey, I, I, I know it when I see it. Like I used to be the top of the top, right? I know it when you see it. You guys are really religious. 
And the reason he's able to do this is because he's driven by his understanding that everyone is made in the image of God. That is to say, because we are all descendants of Adam from one man, all the peoples of the earth came. And that Adam was created in the image of God, that we too are created in the image of God. It's actually interesting, but the Christian worldview actually is the only worldview that's able to explain why we shouldn't be racist and why we should treat everyone with equal respect and dignity. It's because we're all made in the image of God. If this is just chance, who's to say? On what ground do you make that statement? And how does it hold firm? So Paul says, no, we're all made in the image of God. And so everyone is, uh, is equal in dignity and worth and value. Therefore, these Athenians who do not yet know God, who are not Christians, who are idolaters, I'm going to praise what's good in them because there's something of the image of God in them. Because he loves them, Paul finds something excellent and praiseworthy in his pagan neighbors because God loves them. Paul, he also finds a point of contact. That is, he, he sees a statue to the unknown God. This is how bad idolatry was in Athens, okay? Not, not only do they have a God to everything, but they're like, you know what? We might've forgotten one. Okay, the statue to the unknown God, like bases covered. It says, okay, to the unknown God. Paul, he just jumps on it, right? Oh, hey, you see that? All right, I wanna tell you about that. This is what that is. I was sent by God to tell you this is what that is. He finds a point of contact in their culture. He affirms what he can agree with, that there is a creator God. These people would agree that he doesn't live in temples. That's a com- that was a common stoic assertion at the time. And he even quotes some of their own poets. If, we can, if you can look at verse... Uh, 28, if we can have that slide up. So you see where the quotation marks are? Let's say, in him we live and move and have our being. And then again, for we are indeed his offspring. What Paul is doing right there is he's quoting a Greek poet and a Cretan poet to the Athenians. It's really interesting. When Paul's with the Jews, he's drawing from the Old Testament constantly. He's like retelling the entire story of God. And so is Stephen. But with these Athenians, he's reaching from their culture and finding something that they have common ground on and saying, you believe this, right? And at that moment, they're like, yeah, you know that poet? We love that poet. He's our favorite poet. So they're doing that. He's establishing common ground. Verse 28, those two quotes weren't originally scripture. They were poets that Paul quoted and they became part of our scripture. Now in that, Paul's not saying, so if you go back to that poem, it's all actually Bible. He's not saying that. He's saying, here's this true thing in this piece of art that I'm going to use in order to have a gospel conversation with the people. What does that have to teach us? I think it means that there are things we just absolutely affirm and speak life into that we see in our neighbors who don't yet believe. Like, if you have a neighbor who loves their kids and they they would do anything for their kids, and you see that, and you know they're not a Christian, but you see that, you speak life into that. Man, I see that in you. That's so beautiful. Wow, I really see that. I think it means that we recognize that people around us have a sense that there's something of God in creation. And they might express it in the wackiest terms sometimes to us in our little Christian subculture and talking about vibes or crystals or different things. But instead of mocking or retreating and writing Christian memes about it or something, we say, hey, you know what? You're actually right. There is something. There is something of God all around us. Like, his fingerprints are all over creation. We're able to say that. I think it means that we engage with people on their own terms. And this is just a basic form of love. You don't speak, uh, you don't speak to your coworker the same way that you might speak to your five-year-old daughter. 
you adjust your language so that you can have a conversation that's intelligible. That's a form of basic love. And so we speak with our neighbors who maybe have a different worldview and we, we accept, we say, oh, they might not have the same categories of if I just use church words. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see how can I engage with them in some different language? How can I have a mind that asks how I can engage in goodwill towards them so that I can engage them on their own terms? Lastly, I think it also means we affirm what is good in culture and art. That there are pieces of art that are like God-haunted. Movies that people will watch that leave them asking some deep existential questions. And at times that we are able to engage with our neighbors in those things. Not a full-out endorsement of all that comes in from Netflix and Spotify, but yeah, yeah, okay, I can see in this song something that you love that you're longing to know if that's true. Let me talk to you about that. I don't feel particularly great about at this. Someone who I think is really gifted in this inside of our church family is Dave Lomas. If you, if you listen to a Dave Lomas sermon, often he's drawing from art and music and culture to say, hey, this is what this means. This is, this is what it's saying And this is what you're actually looking for. And here's how it can only be found in God truly. He's really amazing at that. We start to ask ourselves and think, how can I engage with my neighbors in a way that they might be able to understand? Like Paul quotes the poets to the Athenians. So Paul, he's not though just going to quote the poets. Uh, He's going to go in a certain direction with it. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So while affirming what is good, Paul uses the culture's belief to show them that they actually don't pass their own litmus test from what they ascribe to belief. He's doing what one author called, uh, he's saying, yes, but no, but yes. It's profound, I know. Uh, He's basically saying this. Okay, so you believe you're God's offspring. Okay, and you believe there's a creator God. Yeah, yeah, I do. Okay, then why are you worshiping a silver idol that you created? If you're his offspring and he is the creator God, then he can't be that idol. He's using something that they both believe and ascribe to to show them that it can't be that God is this little idol. He's saying, but there's actually something better. Yes, we are his offspring. Yes, he is the creator. But no, he's not that idol. But here's something that's even better that you hope is true. You were created by God and he knows you and he wants to have a relationship with you. He's not confined in that little idol. He's actually as expansive as the universe. And he's a person. In our culture, I think it might look something like this. Affirming that God's presence truly is all around us. Not mocking the kind of vague spirituality we've been talking about of crystals and auras and vibes, right? Not mocking that, but saying saying to the person who has a sense that God is around us, that his presence is somewhere here in this universe, saying, you know what? You're actually right and on to something. But at the same time, telling them, but if God's presence is all around us, and if he actually wants to make himself known and be near to us, why do you think he doesn't care about the way you live your life? It confronts a part of our belief part of our neighbor's belief. But then we offer them something even better. You know what? There's part of you that doesn't want to believe God cares about how you live your life. But you're actually hoping that he does care and that he moved heaven and earth to become involved in your life. We affirm what we can. We reject what is wrong and we offer the hope that people are truly longing for. Now, if, uh, 
if I've been just overshooting this and the talk of age of secularity and having a missionary mind, heart, and will, if that's just been feeling a little wearying to you, then take heart because you're going to see what Paul does. And it's something that we absolutely all can do. He engages with his neighbors. He talks to them about the news and what's going on, but then he just goes into it, right? He goes to close the deal. And he says this, he gives gives them the gospel, verse 30. He says, look, all of that stuff is true, but here's the deal. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So lest we think Paul was just trying to be cool in Athens, like the beatnik poet thing, that's not what he's doing. He's willing to risk everything. And he says, yeah, I'm gonna appeal to your poets, but look, here's, here's the real deal. God actually made himself known and the times of ignorance he has overlooked. But now he says, you need to turn away from your idols. You need to turn away from the things that could never save you. The things that are not true, that will never deliver on their promises. And you need to turn to the one true living God. That's the end of all of this talk of a missional heart and mind and will. It's to recognize that the world around us is like God haunted. And to say, you know what, I know that, but I see that people who don't yet know God, they need to know that God loves them. They absolutely need to know that. And the full story isn't that they just don't know God yet, but that uh, we have all put put idols in the place of God. We have put things in God's place that can never satisfy us and never fulfill us. And it's a great sin against God to worship an idol. And now he calls everyone to turn away from whatever their idol has been and to repent. And he has fixed a day and appointed a person by whom he will judge everyone who has ever lived. Paul does this with great love and care. He doesn't just say, repent now. They might be like, I don't know what that even means. But he takes time to know them. But eventually he says, look, You need to turn away from that thing. You need to turn away from these false gods. God has made himself known in Jesus Christ and he rose from the dead and he has proven it. And that is what we base our faith on. And so you now need to turn to God. He loves them so much that he's willing to trust God to do what only God God can do, which is regenerate hearts by hearing the gospel. And so we see the response. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, along with them, and others along with them. So here's, here's the reality. Some, they're going to hear the gospel and they're going to mock it. Some won't believe, and, and some will. But the, the question before is, okay, then how, where do we find the kind of resources to have the kind of missionary heart that Paul had? To have, to have the kind of drive to put ourselves in other people's shoes, to care about them enough to be mocked and to be scorned, to be rejected. How are we ever going to find the power to be able to do that? Well, the thing is, you don't need just a missionary heart and a missionary mind and a missionary will. What you need is to know that you were actually saved by the greatest missionary who ever lived. You see, he left the comfort of his home for you. He left the most lavish, extravagantly joyful life you could ever imagine. And he came to tell you what God was like. And not only that, but he died for you. He moved heaven and earth to be able to come down to you and communicate to you in your own language. He took on human flesh and died in the flesh for you. Jesus Christ is the world's greatest missionary who ever lived. God came for you. 
And once you grasp that, it'll change everything. It moves from just being this vague sense of guilt to this personal thing of if he did that for me, then I'm compelled, I have to. Christ's love compels me to go and tell others. Like, I don't know what it, what it is for you, um, but I was a relationship worshiping. As long as this girl loves me, I'm okay. Man-pleasing, I need to be smarter than other people and I need other people to know that I'm smart, idolater. And in the midst of that, God came for me. And I, and I was already reading the Bible, and I was so proud. And, and God rescued me from my idolatry. And his heart was so provoked in him that he died for me. And he continues, he's even so for me that he's willing at times to wound me for my good, to detach my hands from the things of this world and attach those hands to himself. And that's the God we worship. And so what we're going to do in the second set is we're going to cast our idols down. But the thing is, I you can't just stop being an idolater. You have to start worshiping the true God. You can't just throw down your idol and say, I'm done with that. You have to just break forth in praise of what he's done because he's done it all. The cross put the enemy to open shame. The power of your idols has been smashed as you turn to Christ. So there's going to be people on the prayer teams on these sides. If you, if you just feel just gripped by something, we're going to come and get prayer. Ask for the Holy Spirit's power in your life. Communion is here. Bread and the grape juice. That you would take it and that you would taste and see and smell and know as surely as I taste and see and smell this, I know Christ died and he rose from the dead and I'm proclaiming there's coming a day he's coming back. Let's throw down our idols and let's worship the one true God. Let's pray. God, I do ask that we wouldn't wallow in shame, but that we would know our idols will never save us. They will never talk back to us. But you, O oh God, can save, and you always deliver on your promises. And so we say that in you is joy and life and peace. Would you be worshiped in all of your glory now? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.